Welcome back. This is our final episode of looking at Shinran's letters. And in doing so, we discuss Shinran's approach to scriptural interpretation, particularly his tendency to rewrite scriptural passages in order that they say what he wants them to say. Uh, and we also look at the way that he constructed his Pure Land lineage. For instance, one thing I found really interesting was I read this essay uh, that I found on JSTOR about how Shinran created uh, the pure, his Pure Land lineage. Uh, mm. You know, and he, he created uh, this list of seven figures. Mm. But then what the guy goes on to do is he goes on to show how Shinran kind of tweaked or reinterpreted the teachings of each of these people to fit with his own vision, which I thought was really, really fascinating. Um, uh, And so then he, in a way, what Shinran does is creates this idea of a almost like a logical sequence of teachings coming down to him. But really he's created, or he's read that back, let's say, he's read that back into those, um, those teachers. And to see things like that is, is really quite, I think it's quite interesting because it helps you to understand what Shinran himself thought as well. You know, I, I don't see it as kind of um, dishonest on Shinran's part. It, it probably, well, it's something that anybody who's trying to make sense of anything would do. We'd probably do it. You know, mm-hmm. you kind of read your own sense into to something that someone else says, or, or you would, well, let's just say you interpret it. You, you, right. you, you come to your own sense of it. So there's, there is a lot of interesting stuff, but I, I do want to, kind of stay with or uh, continue with this idea one of the biggest reflections for me i think about the whole thing is about this this um, double awareness that kind of living with a double awareness that on the one hand you're connected to something let's say transcendent or transcendental but at the same time you're a you're a limited being who constantly makes errors and acts unskillfully and that being like the existential reality um Mm -hmm. uh, that and that that for me that that analysis of human life is very very compelling um and it very much resonates with what i live um so that so i i I want to continue with that I, i i think that's really something important that shinran's seen because mostly buddhism doesn't talk in those terms it mostly talks in terms of this is kind of ascent towards perfection. It seems to me that, that that's mm-hmm. the primary model, mm-hmm. and I, I find that quite difficult. Yeah, but so, something that I, that I really have liked about the, uh, the what I've read read so far is, is for example, in talking about the Kamakura period, you, you have um, both drawn out some of the similarities of the situation that the Kamakura Buddhists were in. I mean, it was a very troubled time, um, time of a lot, a, lot, a lot of upheaval and and so forth. And, and, and also the profusion of texts that were available to people. But you've also point, you know, in, which is a situation very similar to what the one who we're in. But you've also pointed out that we have tools at our disposal that People then didn't have, namely, well, we have we have um, 
people like Jonathan Silk, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. textual historians mm. who can say, well, this text was earlier than this text. Whereas for Shinran, it sounds as if, it seems as if everything that's, that was in, in the canon that, that he had came from the Buddha. Right. And um, that, makes, that makes the task of finding some kind of consistency much more demanding than it is for those, those of us who sort of take it for granted that over the course of a century or a millennium or millennia, um, a teaching will become more refined or, or, or less, less mm. refined. It, it will constantly change as so, social circumstances change. So, I mean, it's maybe for you and me, it's not as important to find some kind of common ground between the Pali Canon and the um, Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra as it would be for um, a jury, for example, or the, the people who are coming up with these, uh, you know, Panjiao. Yeah, well, it strikes me the whole kind of, yeah, Panjiao mentality is, is kind of, um, is quite central. Um, and, mm -hmm. um, and that's been, I don't know whether you've got onto this yet, but uh, I've got a whole chapter on Shinjin where I go into this idea of the turning through the three vows. Have you, have you got onto that yet? Um, that, that actually comes up as well in what we read for today. Um, uh -huh. Because, um, so, so let me just kind of lay out a couple of thoughts. So first of all, Shinran came to the conclusion that the most complete teaching was the largest Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra. So that was the complete teaching. And so even though he accepted the three Pure Land scriptures, he thought that was the one that was the, the key, if you like, mm. the key to the mm. other two. Mm. And so then what he did was that he actually saw the, the three scriptures as kind of expressing uh, different, um, uh, different teachings for different levels of practice or development. Mm. Um, and I think that it begins with the contemplation sutra, which, if you like, represents the, the lowest level. Um, and he, he, uh, he relates that to, uh, in the text, he talks about it being uh, relating to birth between the twin sala trees, if you remember that. Yes, um, right. Uh, so right. basically that, that represents, he, here he talks about a self-power within the other power, but I think it's just self-power, really. Um, and that relates to the 19th vow. Uh, which is mentioned here too, actually, um, in the text on page 645. Mm -hmm. If when I attain Buddhahood, the sentient beings of the ten quarters should aspire with a sincere mind and desire to be reborn in my, my uh, land, and yet I should not appear before them at the moment of death, surrounded by a host of sages, may I not attain the supreme enlightenment. So that's right. seen as representing kind of almost like the classic model of practice that you you aspire um and so on so that's the 19th vow and then you've got the 20th vow which he sees as uh as being equivalent to the the shorter uh sutra mm -hmm. um uh, i haven't read this part yet um in the in what we're looking at today but um uh that 
yeah, the 20th vow, if when I attain Buddhahood, the sentient beings of the ten quarters on hearing my name should place their thoughts on my land, cultivate the root of all virtues and direct their merits with sincere mind um, and yet not ultimately attain it, may I not attain the supreme enlightenment. So that's the 20th vow. Mm -hmm. And then there's the 18th, which he, see, he sees uh, well, not only as being the key to the the largest Sukhavati Sutra, but almost like the key to the whole of Buddhism, really. Mm -hmm. um, it really is that central. Um, uh, and so you've got, you've got this idea uh, that he calls the turning through the three vows, uh, which could represent different phases of uh, existential reorientation in relation to um, uh, Shinjin or in relation to uh, the Pure Land, starting with the 19th, which is the, the, the model of self-directed practice mm -hmm. through to the 20th, which is called kind of like a combination of self and other practice, you could say. Uh, and then going to the 18th, which is pure other power. Mm -hmm. So what I'm driving at is that his way of making sense of why these texts are different was to kind of present them as expressing kind of uh, different... Um, phases or or different models uh, of the path and and in um in the kyogyo shinsho he kind of lays out this turning through the three vows um in more detail particularly in i think it's in the chapter is it in the chapter on practice i can't remember which one it is now uh and in in what we've read today uh, which probably is why i wanted to look at it but i forgot is that he, he does it in another way so he talks about each of the three sutras in relation to a key vow. Um, so one of these three vows being central to each of the three sutras, even though all of the vows are found in the largest sutra, they're not found in the other two texts, but he, he uses the largest sutra as the sort of, um, uh, the key to analyzing the other two. Mm -hmm. so, some, something that, 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 that I found um, interesting was in a couple of places he, presents what it says in one of the sutras and then says and here's here's an alternative translation of that same thing so he was aware that yes yeah that the canon that he had had was from a text that came from india that had been translated he, in different periods of time right yeah he is aware of more than one translation yeah i, I did look that up a bit and um yeah, there, there are five, uh, it seems there are five translations of the larger sutra that survive in Chinese. Really? Yeah, uh, they think there may have been 12 altogether, but there are five that survive. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, obviously, some of those were translated into Japanese. The, the one that's most widely used um, is one that was translated about uh, 400 or so, uh, around mm -hmm. 400. And I think that's the main one that he's using here. But as you've just pointed out, he refers to a, a second translation as well. I haven't yet been able to identify uh, the provenance of, of the second one, uh, but I'll probably try and look that up afterwards. But you're right. Yeah, he was aware of more than one translation. Huh? Oh, so he's working from the Chinese, obviously, isn't he? It's not, we're not talking about a Japanese translation here. Right. He's using two Chinese translations. Right. Yeah, and, and and the translators of this into English have done a. It must have been quite a quite a difficult task for them to translate 
these two translations <laughs> uh, and, and to, to bring out the differences in the two translations. Yeah, well, I've got this, um, uh, uh, Diamati, I don't know whether you have it, uh, The Land of Bliss, uh, which is a translation by Luis Gomez. Oh. Uh, but what Gomez does is he takes uh, a Sanskrit version of the larger and shorter Sukhavati Vyuha Sutras and also a Chinese version of the two texts. Mm -hmm. And he translates each of them. So you've actually got two translations of each text, mm. uh, which enables you to see the difference between uh, a Chinese recension uh, of the text and the, the Sanskrit one. And he, mm -hmm. he goes in, he doesn't go into massive detail, but he basically shows that, as I think is fairly normal with the Mahayana Sutras, that they kind of grew over time. Uh, right, right. And uh, it, for instance, in the Sanskrit Sutra, I think there are fewer vowels than in the, the, in, than in the Chinese version. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and, and he uses as the basis of the Chinese version the most commonly uh, circulated translation um yeah um which I, I think it was buddha badra they think was the translator of that to china mm. yeah they, they seem to be constantly revising their ideas of exactly when things were translated and exactly who by but they I, they think that the 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 most widely circulated version of the larger sutra was translated around about 400 mm. but there's a view that the first translation was done before the end of the second century. Um, um, I, I don't have details on a comparison of between all of the different translations. I don't know how much of that work has been done, uh, but there are clearly differences, you know, between the different ones. And 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 in this in this accounting of how many translations there were, is is that how many um, have been reported over time? Because I'm, I'm wondering how, how many of those would have been available to Shinran? Uh, That's a good question. I don't know. Um, so my understanding is that there are five with a T number, you know, so that were like right. uh, have been incorporated into the Tai show. Right. How, how, how we know that there are 12, there were 12 translations, I don't know. It may be that they're mentioned in other texts, but then they've been lost. Um, um, I, I did come across this book by um, what's her name, Jan Natier, and she goes into she's written this book about early Chinese translations of uh, Indian scriptures. So she goes into some of those issues there, but mm -hmm. it's one of those rabbit holes that once you go down there, you can be you know weeks trying to get to the bottom of it. I think. Um, yeah. But that's a good question. How many how many were available to Shinran? I, I don't even know whether anybody would know the answer to that. I guess we can only know by the ones that he refers to. Um, mm -hmm. And so far, we've seen two. Uh, I don't know whether there are more than two. Yeah, uh, um, and I and and I didn't. I haven't looked at the uh, the notes yet for these, but um, I'm assuming <coughs> that the to when he cites two translations, they're identified as to which. Where where is there an example of of him? Um, um, yeah, uh, I've lost my page now. Uh, okay, so well, yeah, there's a couple. Page six forty. Right. We have 
The compassionate vow of true and trusting is stated in the larger sutra. And then, and then another translation of the same sutra, he gives that same vow. That's right, yeah. And um, there's no footnote here. No, uh, it, it is mentioned in the, um, in the supporting volume, though, because the supporting volume gives a list of um, sources. Uh, okay. So, let's see. Um, yeah, this is why I didn't get to read it all today, because I started looking some of this up. Um, so Sutra of the Tathagata of Immeasurable Life. Um, so that's one of the ones that mentions here. Um, yeah. Then it says that's called the Muryoju Nayorai, one of the five extant translations of the Sukhavati Sutra, see larger Sutra of Immeasurable Life. So mm. if we go to that. Uh, okay, larger, larger Amida Sutra, Dai Amida Kyo. Um, see, <laughs> see Sutra of Salvation through the Perfect Enlightenment of Amida. Okay. <laughs> L- larger, larger Sutra Daikyo. See, Larger Sutra of Immeasurable Life. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going all over the place here. Um, right. So, Larger Sutra of Measurable Life, Daimuryoji Kyo. One of the five extant Chinese translations of the Sukhavati Sutra, which relates the origin and fulfillment of the primal vow. Uh, Shinran developed his teaching on the basis of it. So they haven't done a great job, actually, of uh, clarifying the, 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 the different translations there. Right. Yeah. Did, did you, there, there was there a theme that came up in, the, in these writings that, that I found interesting but i didn't know what to make of at all is is the discussion of um you know the, the kinds of birth and, and there 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 seems to be this one where people are issued and immediately into the pure land and, and those yeah. are the people who don't mix up the nembutsu with anything else yeah yeah and, and then then there are these other um unfortunate people who who uh, rely on sundry practices and they they get born into a place where they're they have to live in a splendid palace right similar to to one of the the highest heaven um the highest paradise the yeah. celestial realm and they have to stay there for 500 years without hearing any of the teachings of buddhism without meeting any bodhisattvas without hearing the Dharma in any way. Yeah. That was kind of intriguing, interesting, right? Yeah, so that, um, and this is where it gets quite complicated. So that that distinction is found in the larger sutra. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea, it, uh, and it emphasizes, I think, uh, doubt. So if, if somebody uh, basically has doubt about Amida, they will be reborn in the Pure Land, but they'll be reborn in a flying palace where they'll be for 500 years, and then they'll be, you know, reborn um, more fully. But then, uh, in the um, in the Contemplation Sutra, uh, it's got this idea of nine grades of rebirth um, mm-hmm. in the in the in the Pure Land, and what shinran seems to do is to kind of sometimes he uses take something from one sutra to interpret the other 
and then something from that sutra to took. So it's, it's kind of a bit complicated the way that he does it. But basically in the contemplation sutra, there's a, a bit more of a, an extreme uh, uh, example, which is where, um, let me think, um, which is the, the lowest grade of, um, of rebirth in the Pure Land. Um, and where, where is it talked about there? Um, middle grade of the lowest, those who attain birth in the lowest grade of the lowest rank, okay, yeah, who committed the five evil actions and so on. Um, yeah, so that person is born uh, in a lotus flower, trapped inside a lotus flower, where they remain for 12 great kalpas. Mm. So that's quite a lot longer than 500 years. Yeah. Uh, they remain there for 12 great kalpas, and then eventually the lotus opens and they are taught by Avalokiteshvara Imaha Stama Prapta. So the kind of, I think what I'm getting at is the, the options of rebirth are expanded uh, in the contemplation sutra uh, to these nine possible grades. Um, whereas in the, uh, the longer sutra, I think there's really only two options, I think. Um, mm. Yeah. And, uh, Shinran generally seems to threaten quite a lot or um, push this idea that, you know, if you're not careful, you're, you're going to be trapped inside a lotus for 12 great kalpas, right. um, which obviously doesn't seem like a great option. And, 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 and that is the consequence of having, having doubt that's manifested by doing sundry practices. Is that how that comes about or is that? Um, there are as follows. Suppose there are sentient beings who commit such evil evils as the five grave offenses and the ten transgressions, thus burdened with all kinds of evil. Such a foolish person, because of his evil deeds, is destined to fall into evil realms. Uh, when he is about to die, he may meet a true teacher who consoles him, advises him, and so on. Uh, this good friend says, if you cannot concentrate your thought on the Buddha, you should recite the name of the Buddha, Amitabha. Mm -hmm. So he does it. Uh, with each recitation is evil karma uh, binding him to birth and death for 80 kotis of kalpas is eliminated. Okay. Um, so it seems to be talking more about uh, the, uh, the ethical, um, uh, you know, the ethical status of the person, if you like. Um, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and specifically with with the um, the five graves, right? But that's another that's another thing that's key to the contemplation sutra. And as I understand it, uh, Shinran kind of finesses the eighteenth vow in the light of the contemplation sutra because the eighteenth vow excludes people who committed the five grave offenses, right. whereas Shinran uh, says that know that they as well. Uh, will be reborn in the Pure Land. And the Contemplation Sutra is the confirmation of that uh, because it mm. admits those people, albeit mm. in a very um, uh, kind of um, less privileged rebirth, if you like, mm. in, in the, in the mm. Pure Land. It, as we're talking about this, you kind of realize, or I'm realizing how, how kind of quite complex and dense the whole kind of analysis is. It's really quite involved, you know, the, 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 how Shinran came to the view that he did and the text that he's using to, to support that view. Right. 
and we 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 still have have not yet come across a a text in which he simply lays out here's here's what I think happens um, because it, it seems that you you can sort of more or less figure out what he thinks happens on the basis of the text that he cites and the way that he cites them but we haven't what we seem to have in all of the writings that we've looked at so far is, and maybe maybe all of his writings that that, that exist is 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 a um, kind of a textual exegesis yeah. of sorts. Yeah. But but never uh, a systematic theology, <laughs> as it right. were. You know. So uh, you're asking the question of whether there is a systematic theology in Shinran. Right, right, it, and and I mean it's it certainly is to to use examples from you know parallels in, in Western thought. This is not um, this is not like uh, the uh, the Summa of, of, of Aquinas, who who is you. I, I one of the things that I found I found really interesting was you had a paragraph in which he talked about all of the people. Who are contemporaries of Shinran? It really is quite fascinating when you you look around the world, all of the people who were um, contemporaries. What was going on in various places uh, in in the, in the world? And 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 uh, Aquinas was writing a systematic theology in which he does refer, I suppose, to scripture to support his views. But it's definitely a, you know, a, a program, a, a very a systematic theology, and it doesn't seem that any of the things that we've read of Shinran are like that. I, I mean, that's great that you uh, mentioned that, and that's that's really uh, a good question to explore more. Um, one one initial response to that is that um, that Shinran's method. Uh, is different from uh, Aquinas's in the sense that Shinran's primary method is to arrange scriptural quotations. Mm -hmm. um, well, that, that, that particularly in the Kyogo Shinsho, the, the letters are obviously are, are more personal, perhaps. But the, his, if we could say that the Kyogo Shinsho is his most systematic work, I think we probably could say that because it's the mm -hmm. one most clearly organized with a structure and so on. Uh, but what it's not obvious what Shinran is trying to say in that text, partly because the way that the text is arranged is as a series of scriptural quotations. Mm -hmm. And quite often, there are no direct uh, comments by Shinran himself. Uh, sometimes right. there are, and there's a few places where where more direct comments come out, but often there aren't, and there are quite long series of scriptural passages where he is not himself commenting. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I'm trying to get at is that, uh, well, two things. One, the fact that he's chosen and arranged those scriptural passages has the intention to communicate his theology. That's one. But second, um, Shinran had the habit of kind of tweaking 
uh, the, the quotations to read slightly differently uh, mm -hmm. from maybe what the, the Chinese read or, or he would substitute a word or he would, you know, he would, he would finesse it. Mm -hmm. and, and so in, in the way that he tweaked those um, uh, quotations, again, we start to see what his own view was. So I think what I'm trying to say is that it's less obvious um, in Shinran what his own theology is because he's kind of presenting it behind scriptural co quotations. I, I don't know if that right. makes sense. Right. So there's a lot more work to do in order to try and determine what Shinran's viewpoint is because actually what he's saying is this is what the scriptures say. That's what he's saying. Right. But actually what is not obvious is that there's been a very careful arrangement of those scriptural passages in relation to each other. And also at times a tweaking of certain phrases or ideas in order to give them a certain sense that accords with what he wants, uh, wants to be understood with, with his own theological vision. So right. I don't know whether even with that, we get a systematic theology, but we certainly get various um, points of view. I think various, um, perspectives that he's trying to communicate and, and you know what one of the ways in, in which he he um does these studies of passages is he'll take phrases and then talk about the the range of meanings with of, of the chinese characters yeah um, he, right. he does that fairly often so he'll he'll talk about a particular chinese character and talk about all of the things that that means and and um it's i'm not sure why he does that exactly what whether what he's saying is that no one translation of this term is going to do it justice because it means all of these things you know you have to take into consideration the full semantic range when you think of a term like shin you know for example yeah. it's got it, huge, huge, huge range in Chinese. And, th and then it's even more complicated in a way when you consider that that same character is used to represent a Japanese word, which has its, you know, its, its very wide range. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity for getting lost in, in the, uh, you know, to have a study of, of trees, but not a study of a forest. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I mean, I think that what you just described about like um, unpacking the um, the semantic field of some of the Chinese characters, I, I think that's part of the way in which he's able to make the text say what he wants them to say. I mean, that sounds right. a bit cynical. Uh, I don't mean it that way, because um, I don't think Shinran's acting kind of dishonestly or insincerely. Uh, but he, he clearly has a some kind of um, theological vision, and so he's trying in 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 the only the way that he only knows how to express that using the text available to him. Um, mm -hmm. And so one of his strategies to do that is this: yeah, to isolate. I think sometimes isolate a character or a couple of characters, uh, and then start to show the different meanings of these characters and then use that to support the interpretation that he gives to a, a certain passage. Yeah. And, and that, that way of doing things is, is in some ways 
interestingly parallel to um, the way that Heidegger proceeds, you know, oh. by exploring the etymologies of of words um, in, 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 in a way to make these words come alive again, you know, so, so you know, talking about, um, you know, if we use the term substance uh, as philosophers, we just become really sort of, that, that becomes kind of a dead term. But when you return to the Greek word, which means wood or something, you know, something that you actually work with, it gives you a, a fresh perspective. And Heidegger loves to do things like that. And and I and I th I wonder if Shinran's up to the similar kind of thing, by well you know, char That's Chinese characters also have um, etym well something something akin to etymologies because uh -huh. each character is made up of of elements and um, and so you know you have a radical that means heart and you have another radical that that means speech and then you have another radical that means woman or something like that. <laughs> You put it all together and you come up with something like, you know, um, tender, tender speech or, you know, there, 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 there are, lot, there are uh, lots of ways of exploring Chinese characters that are traditional that, I, that he was very much aware of. That's, That's sort a of fascinating an analogy that you just made there with Heidegger. I definitely want to reflect on that more. Yeah, look at, look, yeah, that's something to think about. So I'm also quite intrigued by what you said about the systematic theology thing. Um, and I hadn't quite thought about that before, whether, whether there is or whether Shinran does have a systematic presentation. It's a, it's a good question, uh, I, and I definitely don't have the answer. Sometimes I get the sense that he says different things at different times, but I, I'm not sure about that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think there's probably more to do. Uh, um, and... Yeah, and often I, I, it seems to me that his, what he's teaching is not very um, explicit. Um, like this whole teaching about the, the, the turning through the three vows. I read through the whole relevant chapter of the Kyogo Shinshu and saw absolutely nothing of that. And then I read some article about it all and then started investigating. And then you start to see, oh, yeah, okay, there is this structure there that isn't necessarily immediately obvious, but then you can go back and you can see it. Uh, and there is actually even a, a declaration by Shinran about this, but it happens in the middle of the chapter, not the beginning. Mm -hmm.